Father, we want to pause to acknowledge how grateful we are for who you are, for the gifts that you've given unto us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And one of those gifts that you gave to humanity and allowed us to carry outside of the garden was the gift of the Sabbath. To have time to come apart, to spend time with our Father. To remember that we are loved, that we are not forgotten, and that God desires our happiness. We pray this morning that as we have gathered here in this place, that the Spirit of God would not fail to speak to every mind and every heart, young and old, revive us again, Lord, and speak to us on this subject of the urge of a fadeless vision. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let all of God's people say, Acts chapter 9. When you're there, say amen. Acts chapter 9. If you're not there, say have mercy. Okay. Acts chapter 9. The title of our message is The Urge of a Fadeless Vision. F-A-D-E-L-E-S-S. Vision. A fadeless vision. We're going to take a bird's eye view at the life of Paul. There's one thing that I've found in the very little experience that I've had in training young people in ministry, studying the Bible, is this inability to concentrate. Many of us are struggling in our devotional lives because we have a hard time concentrating. Focused mind. And so we just want to get to the application. What do you want me to do, Lord? Where's the powerful idea that I can go share with my friends tomorrow? But many times, if we could read the Bible with concerted thought, chapter to chapter to chapter, there are messages that lie from the bird's eye view of Scripture. Now, there's a place for the depth of every text. And I'm a firm believer. I don't like preaching on 15, 20, 35 texts. I know some preachers, you know, that's fine. This is not my preference. But there is a place for many chapters. And able to see when you get to chapter 10, you can connect it to chapter 1. But by the time we get to chapter 10, we forget what we even read in chapter 1. Because of the inability to concentrate. So today, I want to share a message with you that came out of concentration. Trying to remember after chapter, after chapter, after chapter of Paul's life. And this is the message. In Acts chapter 9, we're familiar with this passage. Says in verse 1, then Saul, that was his name originally, still breathing threats and murder against the what? The disciples of the Lord. Now I want you to notice something that if you were a careless reader, you might miss. Nowhere in the book of Acts are Christians called members. They're only called disciples. 
So it says, and God added to the church daily as many as should be saved. But when it refers to them, it says the disciples were multiplied. And in understanding that when you look at Simon Peter, Nathaniel, Thaddeus, Simeon, these were the kinds of individuals that were multiplied. A disciple is an individual whose life is reorganized around his master. And you have a situation where the Bible says, okay, the devil's always busy. He doesn't even take a Sabbath. The Bible says that Saul was breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. Now, if you're not a disciple, Saul has no problems with you. An individual whose life is lived centered around Christ. Not Paul, not Peter, as powerful as his sermons are. Disciples of the Lord. And this is something that's very key, just as an aside. Moving away in our church from this personality-driven kind of movement. You go places and people have their favorite preachers. And they have individuals whose sermons they love to download and listen to and preach like. And I have no problem with mentors and with discipleship within the body of Christ. Maybe I'll let them finish. Thank you, gentlemen. But we have this air in our church right now, which, in my opinion, can be an abuse. A person gets up to preach and God uses him. And we praise God that God is still using imperfect men and women. But we're not to be driven around personalities. You are a disciple of Jesus, not Randy Skeet. Not Sebastian, not Dr. Pippum, not David Ashrick. We will always fail you. I'll, just, I'll be the first one to let you know. Disciples of the Lord. And when this movement is become driven by the mission, not a man. The reason why we gather in this place on this day is because we believe in the mission, not a man. And when we are driven by that, it doesn't matter if there's an SWYC. It doesn't matter if there's a conference. It doesn't matter if there's two of us. We stand because of this particular message. And in this sense, as we gravitate away, I pray that we gravitate away from this. That people do not attend SWYC based upon who is speaking. But because they believe in the mission. Disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest in verse 2 and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, that's what they used to call Christianity, the way. Any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? 
Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goads in the New King James. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now here is a man on a mission for the Lord. In his mind, as Jesus had foretold his disciples, men will persecute you and kill you and drive you from city to city believing they are doing the Lord's service. And Saul is a clear fulfillment of that prophecy of Christ. In his mind, I am jealous for the glory of God, a young man of great promise in the Jewish nation. Having learned at the feet of Gamaliel, a Jewish theologian, full of zeal and passion. One focus is to destroy this heresy coming in. Now there's a lot to be said about a man's character like that. And Saul, whether men or women, drag you to the tribunal to be tried. Some condemned to prison, some condemned to death. And he asked permission Can I go to Damascus? Because this thing is spreading beyond Jerusalem. I want to find them wherever they are. And so as Paul is traveling, we know the story. The light meets him. Now I want you to understand what's happening in this passage. When Saul falls to the ground and out of the light, he hears a voice saying, Why are you persecuting me? And Saul's response is, Who are you, Lord? Question mark. So you have a situation that up until this point, Paul has believed that he is doing loving service for God. And now he's on a road to persecute and all of a sudden light. Now you got to understand in the Jewish mind, light is associated with the presence of God. Why? Because in the sanctuary, when you get into the most holy place, there is the Shekinah what? Glory. Shining. Every apartment of the sanctuary has light. In the outer court, it is the altar. When you go into the holy place, it is the candlesticks. And when you get into the most holy place, there's no need of the light of the sun. The Lord is the light. Everything is an intimation of the glory of God. And so Paul being met by this light in a Jewish mind... Light, a symbol of the presence of God. Here's Jesus coming to him, shining being, he knows it's the Lord. That's why his question ends with, Lord. But the question is, I'm confused about who you are. Are you telling me that all this time, what I thought was helping God, what I thought was comforting God, what I thought was encouraging his name in the earth, was actually destroying it? Now, see, that doesn't strike us. Because if you found out that going door to door, preaching this message, and you're walking back 
to your dorm here in Pine Springs Ranch and you meet a light on the road. You fall to the ground and you hear a voice saying, why are you persecuting me? What are you talking about, Lord? These youth conferences. That door-to-door ministry you're doing. I know you thought that was defending my name. It's actually destroying my church. Now you understand the words trembling and astonished. The very person that Paul thought was an imposter of the true Messiah. Someone we even grapple with ourselves and we say the Pope. This person who claims to be the vicar of Christ in the place of Christ. We're like, he's an imposter. He's not Christ on earth. And then you find out the man who you thought was not Christ on earth is actually Christ on earth. You're telling me you won't be trembling and astonished? After having preached an evangelistic series? After having given umpteen Bible study on who is the Antichrist? Antichristos in the Greek, in the place of Christ. And now to find out you were wrong. All that evangelism, all that call portering, all that preaching, destroying the God of the universe and his church on earth. Trembling and astonished. And he says, who are you? Two questions Paul asks when he meets Jesus. His first question is, who are you? And notice Jesus answers that question. He says, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, goads were used in order to direct oxen. So whenever an ox is trying to go the wrong way, they have these goads. They're like little thorns, and it pricks the oxen in his legs. And therefore, the oxen ain't going to go that direction. (laughs) He's like, that hurts. I'm going to go this way. And so Jesus is using the fact that here you are, Paul, as a strong spiritual ox of the Jewish nation. And Jesus has been giving you goads. He's been pricking your conscience through the martyrdom of Stephen. As you saw his face light up like an angel. You think that wasn't from God? When you heard him recount the history of your nation until this day, you stiff-necked and hard-hearted. You always resist the Holy Ghost. Paul, pricked in his conscience, kicking against the goats. You see, some of us know what that's like. When the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, and you keep fighting conviction, and fighting conviction, and fighting conviction, and Jesus says, isn't it hard to kick against the goats? Isn't it hard to not be able to sleep at night? Because you won't come and answer the call of God? Isn't it hard to start keep propagating these false teachings? Wrestling in your mind, maybe, Lord, I'm wrong, but my pride, my education, popularity, I can't abandon these things. Now, many a minister have sleepless nights for the same reason. I have an MDiv. I'm a doctor of theology. It's hard to kick against the goats. Let me tell you a quick story, and then I have to move on. When I was in Atlanta, Georgia, church I was baptized into, I think I told this story 
somewhere recently. While we were having our AY, all of a sudden, a tall gentleman in a baby blue suit is in the parking lot, waving around money. He says, money for the church, money for the church. And the members are like a little nervous. They're like, um, Sebastian, you are a Marine. Can you go see what, he's, what he wants? <laughs> I was like, oh, is that right? So the elder's walking out about five feet behind me. This is Sabbath afternoon. I'm like, you think the Lord's going to let you perish on Sabbath? <laughs> so I go out and say, sir, can I help you? And the man says, I have money for the church. Okay. Um, can I help you? We'll, we'll take the money. Praise the Lord. And he says, I know that this church, because the only seven-day Adventist church in that town, he said, I know that this church is the true church. Amen. I said, really? He said, yes, I'm a Sunday minister of the Baptist church. Have been for 25 years. He says, I know about the Sabbath, have always known. He says, we've been talking about it in my Sunday school classes. I said, Really? Okay, so continuing on, I said, so what brings you here? He says, well, here's the thing, brother, is that recently I've been having these dreams. I've been wrestling because he said, God has been coming to me in dreams and says, if you don't start preaching the truth, you will be lost. And I will account every soul in your church on your hands. Listen to me. The man said he's been wrestling with God for two weeks. And he said, finally said, I'm done with this. I can't do this anymore. And then he started asking me, Brother Sebastian, how do I transition my church to keeping the Sabbath? I know it is the truth. It is hard to kick against the goats. And I'm telling you, through this story, God was speaking. Sebastian, listen to me. I was only an Adventist for maybe a year or two at that point in time. Just an extra reminder for the church. These Sunday ministers, no. And some of them are having sleepless nights. They may come on the radio and preach whatever they want against the Sabbath. They may try to explain it away, but they're having a hard time sleep. They may get up and shout and dance on stage and preach and all this other foolishness. But when they go home, there are the goats waiting for them. And Paul was trying to kick against those goats. Maybe... Jesus was the Messiah. But he resisted and resisted and resisted and Paul met Christ on the road. Paul, why? And as soon as he heard it, he knew that was his Lord. Now after this experience, the question that Jesus does not answer right away is what do you want me to do? If there's something that constantly plagues young people everywhere I go, it's this constant desire, how do I find God's will for my life? I don't know what God wants me to do. I guarantee if you have a seminar on God's will for your life, it will always be full. Always. God's will and relationships always will be full. Come on, say amen. Guaranteed. I went to Guyana, South America. They said, Sebastian, we want you to talk about relationships and sexuality. I said, um, I mean, are they interested in that kind of stuff? They're like, trust me, it'll be full. 
And sure enough, it was, it was full. <laughs> but you recognize that in this passage, when we meet Christ, and we may have an experience with Him, we come to an SWYC, we come to GYC, we meet Christ in these places. Jesus appears to us, knocks us off our high horse. We recognize I've been going the wrong direction, which is what repentance means. Change your direction. Metanoia in the Greek. Your mind needs to switch. You've been thinking wrongly. So you come, the word of God is open. You're like, Lord, I was way off. Who are you should be your first question. Not what do you want me to do? And the question he will always answer immediately is, I will always reveal myself to you. You need to know who Jesus is before you serve him. And this is why many of us pass and fall out of the ministry. Because we're like, I think this is God's will for my life. But do you know the God whose will it is? Young people, you need to become acquainted with God. Because your first calling is a relationship with him. Not service. We're so busy saying, how do I get active? How do I get involved? You need to be involved with Jesus first. And in a deep relationship with Christ, you will hear his voice. You will know when he's calling. You will know when he's sending. And when he calls his disciples in Mark chapter 3, he prayed all night. Then when he called them, he says, I called them to be with me first. Then I sent them out. But when you haven't been with Jesus... He can't send you. He doesn't send people from afar. He doesn't send text messages. He doesn't send emails. Hey, while you're over in California, can you do? No, personal contact. And when you're walking with Jesus, he says, you know, we've been walking together for a while. I got some work I want you to do. Because his first concern is not your ability to fulfill the task. It's the spirit in which you will do it. Will you reveal me correctly when you go door to door? Will you reveal me correctly when you preach? When I started off as a preacher, I did not know Jesus. Had these sermons, no hope sermons. Just blasting constantly. And I think back, I'm so ashamed. I'm like, how did they even let me get up to preach? And I remember this one sermon, you know, these people were, I mean, just the looks on their faces when I was preaching. And I was getting joy out of this. Yeah, conviction. And I, I was... <laughs> preached this sermon, and I found these statements. You know how we like to abuse the spirit of prophecy. So I found this statement Sister White wrote to a brother and said, Whatever you purchase... That is not for your food or your necessary clothing is robbing God. So you can imagine, just started hammering people in the church. How many guys bought a, a pack of gum? Robbing God. Now listen to me. And we think that's what it means to preach powerfully. I didn't know Christ. And you see, it's easy to preach those things when you're not so much struggling. You don't understand the struggle. But when sin starts beating you up, then you understand. People don't need gloom and doom. 
They need to understand there's hope. God still loves you in spite of this. Still calling, still wants to use you. But you can't preach that when you haven't experienced it. Paul needed to know who Jesus was before he was called to do what he ought to do. Now, in this account, this experience, Paul brings up two other times in the book of Acts. Now we're going to go to the second one, Acts chapter 22. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 22. When you're there, say amen. Okay, if you're not there, say have mercy. Mercy said no. Acts 22 verse 1. (laughs) The Bible says, Acts chapter 22 verse 1. Are you there? Amen. All right. The Bible says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Now you got to understand he's talking to Jews. And these Jews tried to kill Paul. There was a rumor that he brought in a Gentile into the sanctuary. Now, it wasn't true, but you know how it is. People love to jump on gossip and rumors. So he came in. They started dragging Paul out to beat him. The Roman governor stepped in. Saved Paul. And Paul was walking up. He says, look, you mind if I speak to these men for a minute? He says, do you speak Greek? Paul says, I'm a Roman. So he goes, he says, okay, he beckons with his hand. The Jews stop talking. And then when they hear him start speaking in their own language, they get even more silent. And he says in verse 3, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you all are today. I see your zeal, he says. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also receive letters to the brethren, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid. But they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Now, pause here for a second. This gives us a little more information than we get in the book of Acts, chapter 9. So in Acts 22, Paul says, in this account, I was blinded by the glory of that light. So here we see that when Paul was there, Jesus appears to him, he falls down and the light is so bright that it's blinding to him. Now, we understand if you look at the sun for too long, what will happen? You'll go blind. So this light is at least as bright as the sun, except it's not 93 million miles away. It's right on the road to Damascus. (laughs) 
Now, you know, if you look at the sun too long and then you look away, you know what happens? You see the sun, right? Everywhere. There's just this circle (laughs) on everything you look at. I sound like a person who has experience, right? (laughs) And so Paul sees this sun, this light. It's blinding to him. That's all he can see. Now, I want to share a statement with you from the book Acts of the Apostles. And this is what she says, page 115. She says, upon the soul of the stricken Jew, Saul, the image of the Savior's countenance was imprinted forever. Upon the soul of the stricken Jew, Saul, the image of the Savior's countenance was stricken. It was there forever, imprinted upon his soul. Now, Paul says... In this account, he was blinded. They took him up. And again, he says, I was led by other men because I could not see. The only thing Paul could see was what? It's Christ. That's all he could see. Blinded to everything else. But the one thing that was constantly on his mind, the countenance of Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? He sees the face of Jesus. That's all he can see. And here he has an opportunity to speak to his nation, to try to get them to cross the line. Paul, where are your arguments from Acts chapter 17? Where is the philosophy of the Areopagus? Where is the reasoning even your own poets have said? Where is that, Paul? Paul says, no, the one chance I have to speak to my countrymen, I will go back to this experience. But there's one other time this comes up. Let's go to Acts 26. This is where our theme text comes from. Acts 26. When you're there, say amen. 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 Anybody need mercy? Okay. Acts 26. In this account, Paul is talking to King Agrippa. And Agrippa says to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. Now notice, in Acts 22, he was giving a defense to the Jews. In Acts 26, he's giving an answer. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. Especially, notice what Paul says, especially... Because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, hear me what? Patiently. So now Paul starts off with his childhood, but he knows King Agrippa is familiar with Jewish customs. He knows about the Jewish prophets. He's familiar with the Torah. So now he starts lighting into the situation. And then he says, beginning in verse 12. He says, while thus occupied as I journey to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal unto you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom now I send you. Verse 18, what are you sending me to do, Lord? To open the eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Notice Jesus is calling Paul, who is blinded, to open other people's eyes. Not yours. I'm calling you to open their eyes, Lord. What do you mean? To take them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness. And Paul says, after recounting this experience to King Agrippa, in verse 19, he says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not, what's that next word? Disobedient to the heavenly what? Vision. Pause. Acts chapter 9 was the vision. Acts 26, he's still bringing it up. Now you have a situation that Paul says, when Jesus appeared to me, it wasn't so I could just go around saying Jesus appeared to me. Jesus appeared to me for one purpose. I saw Christ and Christ says, I have not come to you just so you can say you had visions of God, like Ezekiel. I came to you, Paul, because I have a calling I want to extend on your life. I've appeared to you to make you a minister. Now, when he calls Paul, Paul says, in responding to the vision, either I will be obedient or I will be disobedient. Are you following? This vision requires response. And Paul says, from this time, when you look at Paul's life, from the bird's eye view, from Acts 9, all the way through Acts chapter 27, you're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Paul has never allowed the vision to ever fade. From the beginning, when he left, spent his three days in agony, was baptized, accepted amongst the apostles, Paul has always had the urge of a fadeless vision. There's nothing Paul sees except Christ. So as he goes, you find him there in the Areopagus. What happened? The Bible says he was stirred in his heart when he saw the idolatry. Paul was preaching in Thessalonica. It says while he was preaching, he was stirred in his spirit. I must preach Christ. Now you understand something. What he saw back then has never, ever faded for Paul. Ever. And he says, here I am. You want me to stand and give you an argument. You want me to give a defense to the brethren and answer to King Agrippa. I have a fadeless vision. Listen to me. I saw Jesus. And he called me. And this whole issue is surrounding my response. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. 
Paul had the urge of a fadeless vision. Every day he woke up, he remembered that vision. He's walking to Ephesus. And in his heart, I have appeared unto you for this purpose. When he goes to Thessalonica, I have appeared unto you for this purpose. He sees it like it was yesterday. But when you look at the life of Paul, and you see that Paul had this urge, this fadeless vision, you start seeing the parallels to Jesus' life. You say, wait a minute. Paul told the Ephesians, I must go to Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit has testified to me that bonds and afflictions await me there. But none of these things move me. Neither do I count my life dear unto myself, that I may finish my course with joy and fulfill the ministry given to me by the Lord Jesus. Wait a minute. Did not Jesus have some disciples who were worried about him going to Jerusalem? Then when he got to Jerusalem, there were some Jews who wanted him to die. And while he's there, he's testifying before Roman governors and kings. And there's someone who was almost persuaded. Are you seeing the picture? So you recognize that Christ is living his life again through the life of Paul. So then the question becomes, did Jesus have the urge of a fadeless vision? You see, for Christ, who stood before Pilate and King Herod, almost persuading Pilate, Christ, who understood when he told his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. And he knew what was awaiting him there. Christ talking to his disciples, getting to Jerusalem, testifying before governors and kings, and then when he arrives, gets crucified. But what was it that got Jesus? The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 18, no man has seen God at any time, save the Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That word declared in the Greek is where we get the word exegesis. If you were to perform an exegesis upon God, Jesus is the answer. I'm the very brightness of his glory. So Jesus comes down. And as Jesus comes down from heaven, he's walking amongst men and he says, I'm the one that touched the first man. And he sees a man laying paralyzed for 38 years. He comes down and you see people burdened down thinking God cares for sparrows more than they care for you. He says, I was in the bosom of the Father. And Jesus says, I know what it's like to be loved by God. I know what is in the heart of God. I've seen his love towards humanity. Listen to me. God is not like this. And you find Christ walking amongst men saying, look, I know what man was supposed to be like. And every day he got up. Why did he heal? Because I know what you were supposed to look like. I never lost the vision of Adam. I never lost the vision of Eve. And every day he walks amongst men, amongst women, urged of a fadeless vision. I'm not here for myself. 
I'm here to show you that your father is not like this. I was on the train in Boston. And while I was riding the subway, I was standing up, and there was a man sitting right across from me. His hands were deformed. His face was deformed. He couldn't even put his feet actually down on the ground while he was sitting on the train. And as I glanced at him, you could see the shame, the embarrassment that he felt, just hoping people wouldn't look at him. And as I was there, I was thinking about this. I said, Lord, I understand now. When I see that man, this is the result of the devil's work. He wishes people wouldn't even look at him. He's so deformed. But he has to ride this train. And you can tell everyone in the car is looking away from him. They won't even cast their eyes upon him. When one day man, when he was created, the whole universe beheld this new creation. And now we won't even look at him. But in my heart, Jesus was like, no, look at him, Sebastian. And you understand what woke Jesus up early in the morning. You understand when he talked to man with a withered hand. He says, come and stand here. Do you think it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? He touched the man and healed him. A woman whose back was broken down. A man who was born blind. Jesus says, no, my father is not like this. He does not delight in your suffering. God is not trying to figure out how to maximize your pain. So sorry for you. You must have sinned. Your parents must have sinned. The urge of a fadeless vision, Jesus could not wait. And as he walks among men, he sees what God had originally intended men for. He sees people who think God will provide for sparrows, but won't provide for them. He sees people who believe that God loves certain people more than them. And he says, when you come to God in prayer, don't call him God. Don't say Lord. Don't say Master. Don't say, oh yes, almighty, eternal. Say our Father. And the way that God would treat me is the same way he will treat you. Our Father, Jesus said. God is not like this, this transcendent on a throne somewhere eons and eons away, hoping that your prayer makes it. A fadeless vision. And when Jesus comes down, he never forgot what it was like to be in the bosom of his father. Never forgot the countenance that his father had when men fell. And the spirit of prophecy says that Jesus had to convince the father to let him go. Father, I want to go die. The father said no. And I don't blame him. Because the way that Christ has been in my life, if Jesus says, Sebastian, I have to leave you. I'm like, but I need your permission. You want me to give up Jesus? 
for someone else. That's why the Bible says God so loved the world. Could have just said he loved the world, so he gave his only begotten son. He so loved the world. You have no idea. My question this morning is, do you have the urge of a fadeless vision? Do you remember what it was like when you first met Christ? Do you remember when you first found a way to tell the story of how your proud heart bowed down before the man of Nazareth? When you said, when I surveyed the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, you say, love so amazing, so demands my life, my soul, my all. Were the whole realm of nature mine, it was a gift far too small. There was a day you felt that way. And it woke you up every morning. No one had to tell you to have devotions. No one had to tell you to witness. No one had to tell you, hey, look, sister, you need to get some more training. Don't treat people that way. That's unchristlike. Don't be selfish. Something in us, when we first met Christ, just tell me what to do. I'll do it. Show me from the Bible. I will follow it. That's how we started. But somewhere along the way, my senses, the vision has faded. Do you have the urge of a fadeless vision? Have you lost the sight of your Lord? Have you ceased to be blind to the things of this world? All of a sudden, it's a little more attractive to go out. All of a sudden, the video games and the Facebook and the internet stuff, just so attractive, Lord. You've lost, your vision has faded. That's where the hymn comes from. When you turn your eyes upon Jesus, the things of this world grow strangely dim. Brothers and sisters, have you been obedient to the heavenly vision? When Jesus appeared to you through that preacher, when that person knocked on your door, when you heard that sermon, when someone came and prayed with you, and you heard the voice of the Lord, you walked away, you said, Jesus, I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever is what we said. They showed you from the Bible, you shouldn't eat this, I won't eat it. They showed us from the Bible, brother, you can't do this on the seventh day. I won't do it. Sister, take off the stuff off your ears. I won't put it on. Don't wear clothes like that. I won't wear them. There was no question, but somewhere along the way, the vision faded. Now we want to debate about whether I should dress this way or not. Now we're not so sure if this kind of relationship is okay. Now we're not so clear about what's diet and why this is important. Because the vision has faded. You see, brothers and sisters, when you lose the urge of a fadeless vision, you get comfortable. And you think about what woke up Mother Teresa every day. Till her death. Laboring amongst the poverty-stricken areas of India. 
when you think about William Wilberforce, abolition of slave trade in England, a man who would come before even when England was on the brink of revolution, and William Pitt, his friend, said, William, you need to lay off the abolition of the slave trade. He said, do you think issues of conscience respect war? I only answer to God. And here was a man who would come before parliament and he would say, look at this man. Is he not a man created in the image of God? The right to freedom. William Wilberforce spent his life to free people. And his purpose was accomplished days before his death. He died three days after they demolished it. The urge of a fadeless vision. When you hear about Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement, that's why that speech is so powerful. When he says, I have a dream. And in that speech, he says, I refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. I refuse to believe that I cannot one day see black men and white women, Hispanic and Asian, walking on the hills where justice comes down like a mighty stream. And when MLK was questioned, they said, you know, the liberal pastors around him, Jewish rabbis, they wrote him a letter. They said, Martin, maybe you're a little, um, maybe you're a little hasty on this. Maybe you should wait before you continue these demonstrations, these sit-ins. People are going to jail. And he wrote back that famous letter from a Birmingham jail. And he says, perhaps it is easy for those to say, wait, who haven't felt the stinging darts of segregation. Perhaps it is easy for you to say, wait, when your mother and your daughter are not given the titles of missus. Maybe it's easy for you to say, wait, when you make cross-country journeys and they say there's no room in the inn for colored people and you got to sleep in your car on the side of the road. Maybe it's easy for you to say, wait, when you don't have to explain to your six-year-old daughter when Funtown is advertised on television and they say it's not open to colored people. And he says, you see ominous clouds of inferiority forming in her mental sky. When you see your brothers and your sisters lynched at whim. It's easy for you to say, wait. Brothers and sisters, we cannot forget why God raised this church. And our pioneers had the urge of a fadeless vision. Why did James White die prematurely? Because it was always on his mind. Why did Jay and Andrews die prematurely? Because it was always on his mind. And in the last days of his life, he would sit at his desk and he would cry because he couldn't do more. Breathing to death. Being questioned, Mr. Andrews, is it true that you've memorized the whole New Testament word for word? And he said, well, 
if the New Testament were destroyed, I could reproduce it from memory, word for word, in five languages. The urge of a fadeless vision. When you have lost your vision, the Bible is clear. You need to remember. Remember from whence you have fallen. I remember when I first came to Christ, I would study the Bible for hours. When I first came to Christ, I said, Sebastian, we're going to do outreach. No problem. I don't care if it's hot. I don't care if it's uncomfortable. I'll do it. But you say, now we're happy with 30-minute devotions. Oh, I don't want to go to outreach. It's hot today. And you got to bed at a godly hour to respect the health loss. Brothers and sisters, do you have the urge of a fadeless vision? Do you see something that wakes you up early in the morning? That keeps you up late at night? That you're willing to lay down your life for? Paul says, I don't count my life dear to myself. None of these things move me. You think I care that I will suffer? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. You think I care that it's uncomfortable? Shipwreck twice? In perils of my own countrymen? Do you think I care? I have the urge. I have not forgotten the heavenly vision. Christ appeared to me for this purpose. And when I was blind, with my face in the dirt, he said, rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared for this purpose. To make you a minister. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Perhaps today you say, Lord, my vision has faded. I've lost the urge. It doesn't wake me up early anymore. It's not a delight to sit down and just study the word. I don't have the passion that overcomes weather and other opposition to ministry. And today, Lord, I'm praying as you counseled the church in Ephesus, that you help me to remember where I have fallen, to repent and to do the first works. What did I do when I first fell in love with Jesus? If this morning you want to say, Lord, I need you to restore my vision because it has faded. I just want to ask that you stand to your feet. I want you to restore my vision. It has faded.
And I'm asking. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Sometimes we like to look around to see. There's someone whom God has called. You had an encounter with Christ and you heard his voice. And he was calling. But you haven't been obedient to the heavenly vision. This morning, Jesus calls again. For that soul that said, Lord, I know you're calling me into ministry, but I resisted. I know you're calling me into ministry, but I left it. And today you hear his voice saying, you need to obey the heavenly vision. I just want you to slip out and come forward. I know that there's a calling on my life that I have resisted or left. Come. I know you've been calling me. I know I should be doing certain things and I resisted it. I left it, Lord. And this morning, Jesus is saying, obey the heavenly vision. Come. Get your urge back. You know who you are. You hear his voice, come. Lord, I have not been obedient to the heavenly vision. I know Jesus was calling me and I left it. I resisted it. I didn't think it could work. I didn't think I would get the finances. I didn't know how I would go about it. Come. No more excuses. No more excuses. I will be obedient to the heavenly vision. Come. You know who you are. And you heard the Lord's voice speaking to you. Jesus, I will do what you ask me to do. I want my urge back. No more will I say wait. It's easy for me to say wait when I'm not the person without the gospel. Come. Answer his call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful this morning for visiting your people. Father, we are thankful for hearing your voice today and reminding us where our vision has faded. We have forgotten from whence we have fallen. And it is our prayer today, this morning, that you would restore the urge of a fadeless vision. That we would always set Jesus before our face. We would remember when we first fell in love with Christ. That like Paul, Lord, we would live a life where it never dies. That when we step foot in malls, our hearts would be stirred to see the idolatry of fashion. When we visit poverty-stricken areas, we'd see the need to show them that your heavenly Father has not forgotten about you. Jesus, give us back our urgency. And for those of us who have come forward, there was a call on our lives, and we resisted. You know the reasons, but we're putting the excuses aside, and we're saying, Christ... We are yours completely. 
totally available for your service. We will never make excuses, Lord, as to why we cannot do what we hear the voice of God calling us to do. Help us to be obedient to the heavenly vision, to follow what you have called us to do. This is our prayer, and we trust that you'll help this to be our experience. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.